this morning, I'd like us to, to take a look at the book of Job. Uh, probably a book that most of you are familiar with, certainly the themes in there and um, the basis of the storyline, if not the intricacies of the book. And it's typically known as a book that's about suffering. Uh, One of the big themes that comes out of it, of course. And what I'd like us to do today is acknowledge that and look into that a little bit, but actually see that there's more in the book of Job than, than merely, and I use that in inverted commas, merely about suffering. So, before we start, let's, uh, let's pray. Father, we offer this time to you now and ask that you would unpack your word for us. Father, please find in me a, a willing mouthpiece to speak your truths. Lord, use this time to speak to us collectively and individually through your spirit. And Lord, anything that comes from me and not from you, anything that is... Uh, not a truth from you. Lord, would that fall by the wayside and Lord, make it no further than the, than the four walls of this room. Lord, but everything that is from you, anything that does reflect your eternal glory and your truth and speaks to us as you speak to us in our, in our lives and our situations in the here and now, Lord, would we take that with us out of this church and into the week ahead. In Jesus' name, Amen. So the book of Job is, is very old. It's um, probably one of the oldest books that we've got, uh, dating from about 400 BC, some historians think. Um, Ali and I like the book of Job, partly because that's it's one of the reasons we named Jemima and spelt her name as we did, because right at the end of the book of Job, uh, he, we find that he had seven sons and three daughters. Now our choice was either to go with Jemima, with an H on the end, which was rather nice. Kezia, not so much a name that we... Uh, we were attracted to, and certainly the third one, Karen Hapuk, I'm not quite sure how you pronounce it even, let alone spell it. We thought maybe that's probably for, probably for someone else, so we start with Jemima. So it's, uh, it's a book uh, that is very old. It's um, very highly regarded, actually, as a piece of literature. A lot of people would consider it one of the greatest pieces of literature alongside Homer and Dante and Shakespeare. Uh, much of it was written in uh, Hebrew poetry, so a lot of the conversations that take place kind of through the middle of the book with Job's, Job and his friends was actually written as Hebrew poetry. Um, it's, it's classified as a piece of wisdom literature, which means that it's classed along with the likes of Song of Songs and Proverbs and ecclesiastically, uh, Ecclesiastics, and some of the books of Psalms, some of the chapters of Psalms, as a piece of wisdom literature uh, in terms of its genre. But what we, we have to be careful with that because it doesn't mean that everything we read in it is the wisdom that comes from God. So some of the, the statements that are made in there by Job's friends, for example, are not necessarily reflecting the mind of God, they're reflecting the mind of men, but within the bigger context, it's, uh, it's a piece of wisdom literature. Um, there's, there's debate as to whether it's factual, or whether it's totally f- uh, fictitious, or whether it's this homogenized term, factional, which is a bit of each. Um, so... Uh, Ezekiel refers back to it. James also refers back to Job. Um, there is realistic attention to detail in there in terms of where Job was from um, and some of the other elements and, and details. But it does stretch credulity somewhat, especially when we see at the start. And I, I will very quickly go through the passage and then we'll, we'll dip into it in a bit more detail later, so don't worry. But at the start, we see some awful things happening to Job which seem to stretch 
uh, one's imagination somewhat, and then everything restored at the end, and it's almost as if what he lost at the beginning almost doesn't matter, that it's restored at the end, and so everything's well with the world again. So there is a sense that it's perhaps a little bit unrealistic in, in that sense, um, a slightly contrived happy ending. Um, and as I mentioned, that some of the speeches are written in Hebrew poetry. So again, whether it's fact or fiction or faction, we're not quite sure. It almost doesn't matter because the purposes of the book are served, whether it's historical or not. Um, some would say we could see it as almost a, 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 um, one of the um, parables of Jesus that it serves a specific purpose with that element of realistic detail, but it doesn't necessarily find itself totally rooted in history. So it almost doesn't matter, but it's good to have that as a bit of context. Certainly what it is, it's not just a a work of uh, wisdom literature, but it's a work of philosophy. So it talks about some of the big questions that we we still ask to this day. The purpose of life, the origins of evil, uh, why do good people suffer, um, where is wisdom to be found, ultimate wisdom, and also very much about God's involvement. You know, does he care about his creatures? Does he care about us, about our lives, and our, the intricate details of our lives? So let's just very briefly run through it. If, if you have your Bible with us, then, then great. If you don't, that's fine. Um, we'll just have a little kind of aerial view, just so we have in our minds a sense of what the story is from start to finish. So we, we find out in the prologue, we find out about Job, Um, He was called here blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters. He owned a lot of land, a lot of livestock. He was, uh, materialistically, he was very wealthy. um, But he was also a very uh, honorable man and was very conscious of of sin and, and, and admired God. Then we kind of changed scenes. So we were introduced to Job and then... Very swiftly, we change scenes, and suddenly we're in the, the throne room of heaven where we, 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 we read in uh, Job 1, verse 6, one day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. Now, at this point, so I uh, have been told, so I've read, uh, when this was written in Hebrew, there was no official name for Satan. He was referred to as the Satan. And at this point, he was part of the, the, the heavenly realm uh, with the angels. And Satan actually means the deceiver. So the Satan, he was the deceiver. His role, if you like, was to go and scout out and, uh, and look for, for sin. And he comes to the Lord and he says, have you considered, uh, sorry, from roaming through the earth and going to and fro it, uh, that's where he's come from. And then the Lord says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright a man who fears God and shuns evil. But then this is the crunch. Satan says to to God, does Job fear God for nothing? The idea is that Satan is is saying to God, he only follows you and trusts you because he's been blessed. That that's the reason that he's doing it. It's through selfish means. So, So he says to the Lord, stretch out your hands and strike everything he has and he will surely, surely curse you to your face. This idea that if we take everything away from Job, you haven't got yourself a follower anymore. So the Lord said to Satan, very well then, everything he has is in your hands, but on the man himself do not lay a finger, verse 12. And then we see that uh, a series of pretty horrendous things happen to Job and happen to his his family and uh, those around him and his belongings. And then we move through to uh, Job chapter 2, and it happens again. Satan comes before the Lord, and uh, similar questions are asked, and he says again, have you considered my servant Job? And this time, he says that uh, 
verse 6, chapter 2, verse 6, the Lord said to Satan, very well then, he is in your hands, but you must spare his life. So he can lay a finger on him now, but he must spare his life. And then that's what happens. Uh, Job is subjected to to awful, horrendous uh, afflictions. But yet he fails to uh, stop praising God. He continues his worship and continues to see the Lord as as worthy and uh, righteous. So he's covered in sores. It's all, it's all pretty horrendous. And uh, he's lost an awful lot. He's lost family. He's lost possessions and wealth. And uh, three friends come on the scene. Now, obviously, Job doesn't know what's been happening. Job doesn't know about this wager between God and Satan. So for him, this has happened pretty much out of the blue when he's been blessed with so much. And then all of a sudden, that is taken away and, and, and more. You know, he's afflicted with such, such pain and, and horrendous uh, suffering. And then his friends come on the scene. And to begin with, they spend quite a lot of time with him in silence, almost as if they're mourning with him. Not quite sure what they, what they can say to, to poor old Job. And it's almost as if uh, during that time they're starting to think about, well, why, maybe I wonder why this has happened. And so we, we've seen the prologue, and then we enter this stage of this phase of dialogue, the human dialogue, where Job's three friends start spouting out these ideas with Job as to why they think he suffered so much. Um, they think that his suffering is due to some sort of sin, that there's a, they believe there must be some sort of cause and effect. And this is, this is often a view that we do here to this day about suffering and pain and uh, bad health being associated with, with sin. So we move through quite a few chapters where this conversation, this dialogue moves on uh, through, with Job and three friends. Uh, some really interesting monologue in there from Job as well, which we won't, won't ponder on this morning specifically, but I would encourage you to go back, back to this. And then we come to, verse, sorry, we come to chapter 38. So in, uh, during this, this uh, the bulk of the book, Job actually asks God 36 times to speak to him, that there is a sense of divine silence. And Job is crying out to God over and over again, 36 times, asking him to speak. Now, chapter 38 is where he gets his wish. And the Lord speaks. And the Lord speaks through chapter 38, 39, and 40. And from chapters 40 onwards, there's a, uh, there's a focus uh, on the creatures and God's control over, over creation. And there is a sense that, look, Job, you can't even fathom how the world works, you can't even understand the animal world. How are, you, how are you going to understand the moral world that you're questioning so much with your suffering? And then towards the end, we, we reach the epilogue. And by the end, Job has been vindicated as God's servant, and he has his family and his possessions returned. His three friends, who have been uh, less than wise, shall we say, in their, uh, in their conversations with Job, are... Um, are criticised. They're let off the hook once they apologise and uh, repent. But uh, they're certainly not what they've said has certainly not been endorsed by the Lord. Um, just flitting back to the start as well. One thing I, I should have mentioned: it's very interesting how we see that we, we get a reflection here of the true uh, hierarchy, heavenly hierarchy, if you like. So we see Satan, the Satan, coming in as a creature. Never be fooled into thinking that the the, the the divine battle that goes on is between God and an equal rival, that Satan and God are on a par in terms of power, because they certainly aren't. 
Satan has been created, he is a creature, and he is under God's divine authority. And all sorts of mistakes come out when we, when we see God as, as almost some sort of superhero who's wrestling with, with one almost of equal strength and power. Satan isn't uh, uh, omnipresent, he's not omnipotent. He, he has to roam the earth to and fro. There's no sense, he doesn't share God's omnipresence in this. And, and Job is a good book to remind us of, of that fact, which is really, really important. So that's a brief outline. And, and like I said, the, the, bulk of, the bulk of the book does deal with Job's suffering and explanations around that. But I think that as much as, as helpful as it is for us to look at it from suffering, there's more to it. So, it's not working, Steve. Thanks. If, if I step this way, you know when to clear. If that's all right, thank you. <laughs> so, <laughs> and next one, please. Thank you. So, I'd like to draw our attention away, if I can, from Job specifically, and actually look to to the Lord that is, is behind this book. So even after two rounds of response from, from God, uh, where he, uh, he, asks, he questions Job about uh, Job's abilities and his authority and wisdom, and even though Job has been asking all of these questions, God doesn't actually give Job any of the answers that he's looking for. Throughout this book, there, is no, there are no contrite answers. There are no easy-to-digest succinct answers from God as to why suffering is allowed. All he does is simply call into account human wisdom and it shrivels in comparison to, to God's wisdom. The three friends, the, uh, the fourth person who comes on the scene, Elihu, and even Job himself are all silenced before the ultimate wisdom of God. It does show us that innocent suffering is part of the redemptive purposes of God. We may not understand why it happens, uh, most of the time but it does show that God is able to use that as part of his redemptive purpose and as I already alluded to it does show that if sin and suffering were, were directly related we'd essentially be forced to love God through selfish reasons that uh, it wouldn't be a voluntary love that it would be purely so that we could keep out of scrapes and trouble and uh, have a better life but that's not what the book tells us it's not what it shows what I think is really interesting is that of all Job's pain, physical pain, uh, social pain, the mental pain, the greatest pain that he experienced was actually spiritual, that it was because he lost touch with God. He cried out to God 36 times, where are you, why is this happening? And that was perhaps his biggest pain, that he'd lost touch with God. So actually this is a book, not just the wisdom, not just about uh, suffering, this is a book not just about philosophy either, this is a book, this is a work of theology, because crucially it tells us what God is like. Let's go back and uh, dip into some of the chapters in slightly more detail. I'd like to go through, and, and I will read the whole chapter of 38. I, I don't really apologise, because I don't think reading scripture is something we ought to apologise for in church, but I do appreciate that sometimes it's easy to, to drift off. So, Feel free to follow it with me, uh, or close your eyes and try and listen. I, I do wish I had the voice of um, a, a nice deep voice, like uh, Brian Blessed. Yeah, I, do, I think that would be ideal for this part, but I'm afraid I don't, and Ali doesn't either, even with a sore throat. So, uh, 
Just try and, try and imagine this through some sort of processor, voice processor. So I'm going to read uh, chapter 38 and then jump to, to the start of chapter 40. But I would urge you to go back and read this yourself because uh, I don't think anyone can read this and, and remain uh, untouched. So chapter 38, the Lord speaks. Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm. He said, Who is that? Who is this that darkens my counsel? With words without knowledge, brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched the measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? Who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness? When I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place? When I said, this far you may come and no farther? Here is where your proud waves halt. Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place that it might take the earth by the edges and shake the wicked out of it? The earth takes shape like clay under a seal. Its features stand out like those of a garment. The wicked are denied their light and their upraised arm is broken. Have you journeyed to the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been shown to you? Have you seen the gates of the shadow of death? Have you comprehended the vast expanses of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. What is the way to the abode of light? And where does darkness reside? Can you take them to their places? Do you know the paths to their dwellings? Surely you know, for you were already born. You have lived so many years. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow or seen the storehouses of the hail, which I reserve for times of trouble, for days of war and battle? What is the way to the place where the lightning is dispersed, or the place where the east winds are scattered over the earth? Who cuts a channel for the torrents of rain and a path for the thunderstorm, to water a land where no man lives, a desert with no one in it, to satisfy a desolate wasteland and make it sprout with grass? Does the rain have a father? Who fathers the drops of dew? From whose womb comes the ice? Who gives birth to the frost from the heavens when the waters become hard as stone, when the surface of the deep is frozen? Can you bind the beautiful Pleiades? Can you loose the cords of Orion? Can you bring forth the constellations in their seasons or lead out the bear with its cubs? Do you know the laws of the heavens? Can you set up God's dominion over the earth? Can you raise your voice to the clouds and cover yourself with the flood of water? Do you send the lightning bolts on their way? Do they report to you? Here we are. Who endowed the earth, the, the heart, with wisdom or gave understanding to the mind? Who has the wisdom to count the clouds? Who can tip over the water jars of the heavens when the dust becomes hard and the clods of earth stick together? And then I can jump to chapter 40, verses 1 to 7. Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. Then Job answered the Lord, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice. But I will say no more. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. (laughs) I don't know about you, but imagining myself in the place of Job is not something that uh, fills me with anything but sheer dread. I am... Thank you, Steve. And one again, please. Thank you. I don't know if you've seen The Hobbit. 
where uh, Bilbo Baggins enters, enters the, the mountain that's filled with all this, this hoard of gold and treasure that is uh, just beyond comprehension. And lying under that is the, the dragon Smaug, who has been lying there in wait for, for hundreds of years, I think. And little Bilbo Baggins is going in there and he's looking for one particular gemstone amidst this sea of gold and treasure. And he wakes the dragon. And uh, as the dragon comes out, the huge size of this dragon and the vast, vast scale of him standing in front of this, towering in front of this little Bilbo Baggins. And Bilbo is there having this conversation with him. And there are so many films like this where we see some representative, usually a representative of evil, standing before a hero who is minuscule in comparison. And uh, sometimes those films might be, you know, the, the, the evil character might be representative of dark forces. And I do sometimes find, I don't know about you, I do sometimes find myself thinking, if I was confronted with a demon in that sense, with a, with a character of darkness, as a Christian, thinking about this literally and sensibly as a Christian, I know that Christ lives in me and uh, the power of resurrection is, is in me. But would I be able to stand there, fearless, almost like Bilbo Baggins does in front of the great Smaug? I don't know if I would. There's a lovely story, I think it was uh, Tozer, A.W. Tozer, who went up, got up one night and he went, I think he went to the bathroom and he came back and he heard a noise and he held his candle out and in the corner of his room was a, was a demon. And he just said, oh, it's you. And he blew out the candle and got back into bed and fell fast asleep because he knew that the, uh, the demon couldn't touch him because Christ was on his side. So sometimes it's really hard to imagine Job suffering as he is, covered in sores and, and having lost so much in front of this storm that represents Almighty God. So I don't think the book of Job is purely about suffering and sin. I think it's also about God's size. Now let's have a think about that we, we've, we've read quite a lot today already this morning about the, the size of creation and, and God who is the author of that, who brought these things into, into being purely through his word, just by speaking and these things came, came about. Incredible, incredible, mind-blowing. But I also think that uh, it's, it's useful to think about the size of this universe over which he is, uh, is the author and the ruler. Uh, it talks about the earth being the footstool of God but even that, actually, it shrinks God down to, to something whose feet would fit on the earth. When we think about the universe, and I appreciate you can't see all the detail in, in that image up there on the screen. So scientists say that uh, the universe is growing. Now bear in mind that we're familiar with the term light year. Now a light year is quite a small ruler to me- with which we can measure the cosmos. So a light year is the equivalent of 3.88 trillion miles. But when scientists are measuring the scale of the universe, a light year isn't quite big enough. It's, it's rather small. So they start to talk about parsecs, which I'm reliably told are 3.2 light years. So that's 3.2 times 3.88 trillion miles, and you've got yourself a parsec. Then that scales up, and it can multiply, and you can get gigaparsecs and all that. And, and my, my sort of head just combusts at that point. But the diameter of the observable universe, and the observable is to do with the speed of light coming and reaching us and then suggesting how, how old creation is and how much we can observe, but scientists do believe there's more beyond that. The diameter of the observable universe is estimated to be 28.5 gigaparsecs, so that's about 93 billion light years in diameter. It, it just goes beyond human understanding, doesn't it? of the size of that. So uh, the, the image up there shows the edge of the observable universe. The, I don't know if my 
little pointer is going to work. No, it doesn't quite reach. Um, so the outer circle is the edge of the observable universe, which is growing all the time. So even talking about the size of this now, actually, while we're talking about it, it's, it's still growing. Um, and right in the middle is the Virgo supercluster, which is too small to show on the image. And within that supercluster is the Milky Way. And within the Milky Way, somewhere, is planet Earth. So somewhere in the deepest, darkest corner of the universe is planet Earth. And on that, there are about seven and a bit billion of us. Makes you feel pretty small and insignificant, doesn't it, when you start to think about it like that? Scientists, and they admit this, that scientists can only account for about 4% of the universe, they think. So the other 96% for them is total mystery. There are hypotheses, and that, but they, they don't know. They, 4%, they think they know. But 96 remains elusive. Neil Armstrong sent this after being the first man on the moon. I remember on the trip home on Apollo 11, it suddenly struck me that a tiny pea Pretty and blue was the Earth. I put up my thumb and shut one eye, and my thumb blotted out the planet Earth. I didn't feel like a giant. I felt very, very small. This whole concept of everything you've ever known, your whole life, the whole reality of physical science, biological science, chemistry, family, social networks, everything, your thought life, your physical life, all of that just disappearing behind your thumb. You felt very, very small. So as creatures in the universe, if we look at it objectively, well, we're essentially nothing. But even our imagination cannot contain God. So we know that the universe cannot contain him because he, it's in his hands and he's outside of that. But even our imagination struggles to contain him. I mentioned A.W. Uh, Tozer a minute ago. He said this, When we try to imagine what God is like, we must of necessity use that which is not God as the raw material for our minds to work on. Hence, whatever we visualize God to be, he is not. For we have constructed our image out of that which he has made. And what he has made is not God. So how can our minds comprehend the creator God when all we're trying to do is build up a picture of him with the things that he has created, which are not God? Us feeling infinitesimally infinite us feeling very small is great news for the devil. You can have the next slide. Thank you. See, what Satan likes to do is he likes to toy with our own view of who we are and of who God is. You see, we can only understand who we are truly when we have an understanding of who God is. The created only makes sense when we understand the, the creator. And since Genesis, the devil has been tricking people into seeing God as something he isn't. You'd go back to Genesis 1. What does he do? Did God really tell you you can't do that? What is the authority of God? Surely he doesn't know what he's talking about. You're, you're bigger than his, his position that he's given you. God isn't really that sort of being. So Satan wants us to see God as being something much smaller. Because if they're smaller, they tend to be further away. And what this does, when we see God, when we see Jesus as something much smaller than he is, than he truly is, and further away, it reduces our attachment to him. Why would we trust and obey something, someone with such little power? It would seem a bit daft, a bit ridiculous to do that. 
in his book, and I've got a copy with me, and some other books here. So if you're interested in some of these themes about the, our perception of, of the size of God, then do come and see some of these books afterwards, because I, I find them personally to be incredibly helpful. One of them is uh, J.B. Phillips in his book, Your God is Too Small. He says this, It's obviously impossible for an adult to worship the conception of God that exists in the mind of a child of Sunday school age, unless he's prepared to deny his own experience of life. If, by a great effort of will, he does do this, he will always be secretly afraid lest some new truth may expose the juvenility of his faith. And it will always be by such an effort that he either worships or serves a God who is really too small to command his adult loyalty and cooperation. So the idea that if we put our faith in a God that's too small, it's a rather rattly faith that could easily be knocked over as soon as something apparently bigger comes along. Phillips goes on. It often appears to those outside the churches that this is precisely the attitude of Christian people. If they're not strenuously defending an outgrown conception of God, then they are cherishing a hothouse God who could only exist between the pages of the Bible or inside the four walls of a church. Therefore, to join in with the worship of a church would be to become a party to a piece of mass hypocrisy and to buy a sense of security at the price of the sense of truth. So when our view of God is too small, not only does it affect our own faith and our own relationship with him, to those outside, those in the world with whom we are tasked to spread the gospel, it doesn't look great, does it? Because we either look like we're, we're worshipping a God who's far too small to take any notice of, or there's this idea of a God who's only relevant within a Bible or within the walls of a church and doesn't relate to the world outside it. And hypocrites we would become. So there are three risks. There's the risk that we are seeing God as too small. Thank you. Thanks. So there's the miniature God. The second one is that we see a boxed God, that he's powerless. So we lose sense of wonder at creator God because his power comes to nothing. Or there's a third risk, which is he's almighty, but he's not almighty. So he is our mate, he's our best friend, he's our girlfriend. I know that some people like to think of some of the modern worship day songs, modern day worship songs as singing about Jesus is our girlfriend, that he becomes almighty. <laughs> and he has no power or might, that he's almighty and not almighty. Now, obviously God's size isn't why we worship him, in the same way that a person is of vastly greater worth than a mountain ten million times his size, his physical size. So it's not size alone. And we must not only be impressed by the size and the unlimited power of God either, because we must be moved to admiration, respect, and affection if we're going to genuinely worship. But it is important that we acknowledge his size. J.I. Packer said that uh, when we lack a knowledge of God's greatness, or lacking a knowledge of God's greatness, is one of the reasons that our faith is so feeble and our worship is so flabby. So when we realise that this God is active, that he's present, that he's with us, what more can we do than bow the knee in worship? So I would argue that our fear of and our, and our dependency on, on God are related and it's all a matter of perspective. How we view this God affects how we relate to him and how we depend on him. And the image of God we hold in our mind and our heart shapes our relationship with him. Because we were made to esteem something bigger than ourselves. And so God gets bigger the closer we draw to him. 
because we see him better. But he also gets clearer the closer we are to him. When we think of Elijah hiding in the cave, and outside was the raging fire, what was it? It was uh, earth, wind, and fire, wasn't it? There was the raging earthquake, there was the, the mighty storm, and there was the fire that swept through. And God wasn't found in any of those things. He was found in the quiet whisper. Say that again, God. Elijah. So when God whispers, the closer we are to him, the better we hear him. Now, as Christians, we mustn't look at anything in the Old Testament and not see how it fits part of the bigger picture and, and without looking ahead to, to the New Testament either because the cross puts very different value on human suffering. And actually, Job was what you might call a type of Christ. So he, there was something about the story of Job and him as a character that was representative of the Jesus that, that was to come. Interestingly, they both cry out, my God, why have you forsaken me? Not necessarily sharing exactly the same words, but they were, both of them shared this understanding of, and this sensation that God had abandoned them. Most famously, Jesus on the cross uh, just before his death. And Jesus suffered as if he were a guilty man. As Job suffered and we are told he was blameless, of course he wouldn't be sinless because that was only Jesus who led a sinless life. But Job suffered as if a guilty man and Jesus did the same. And we we don't have time to look into it now, but Job declares in uh, chapter 42 verse 2 that uh, the, the plans of God will prevail. And what does, when the angel comes to see Mary in Luke chapter 1 verse 37, what is declared then? That no plan from God will ever fail. There is a sense that these, these things that we're experiencing have a bigger purpose. And of course the grace of the cross changed our relationship with God. So where once, and certainly in the, the Hebrew writing of Job, they were referring to, to the Lord Almighty, and around that time it's very pluralistic. So nowadays we talk about God, and most people have a vague notion of, of who we might be talking about, um, even though different religions do, do have uh, different views of, of who that God is. Certainly at the, the time of writing, it was a very pluralistic culture. So the, uh, the Israelites would, would use the term uh, Yahweh, and they only had vowels uh, in Hebrew uh, language, only had vowels around 6 AD. So hence, whenever you see Yahweh written in the original manuscripts, it is without the vowels, so Y-H-W-H. What's really crucial is that in light of the cross, we don't see that uh, God's size, we don't see that as depersonalizing him because when Jesus came it changed who we refer to God as Yahweh it changed that to Father and uh, last week there was a lovely illustration there about the, the impact uh, around that time of when, when the disciples said you know, what, how should we pray? Father, our Father God in heaven this idea of Father suddenly they're relating to God in a totally different way than, than had historically done so because the cross changed it so uh, there is a sense that our relationship with God has changed and God of this huge vast size is personal and he's intricate with our lives and he's interested uh, Louis Giglio, the American pastor says this, just because you are small never confuse that with being insignificant to God, coming face to face with your humble estate doesn't nullify the love that drove the son to give his all for you you are little but you are intensely loved you are not but I am thinks enough of you to organize a visit that divided history and forever defines your worth. 
in Christ we saw the incomprehensible vastness and scale and greatness and awe and majesty and sovereignty of God in the humble form of a man. Dallas Willard talks about the, the nature of, of Jesus in such an everyday uh, reality, grounded. He, he, Jesus, what, what, what it shows, what uh, Jesus' life shows is that he could have been born into your household. He could be living in your neighborhood. He could have your job prospects. He could have your bank balance. He could have your family, your friends that it's knitted in the reality. So the, the life of God doesn't crush the, the life of us people. It actually fulfills our lives. Colossians 1, 16 to 18 says that, For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. Isn't that interesting? That in him all things were created. Everything that we've talked about this morning, everything that we've started to think through, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, they were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And do you know what? He's the head of the church. That this creator God loves his church as a bride the church with its beauty and the blessings that it pours out and its ugliness and its and its faults and its shame but he is the head of that body the church and he stands with us and he asks us to be his body but it's when we get a, the right perspective of Christ as the head, when we understand his size, and when we are connected, when we are close enough to see him for who he truly is, that's when we, we work best as a body for him and for his purposes. And I'll finish by looking ahead. In Revelation 21, we see what will be, what is to come in this apocalyptic imagery. I know very little in, in scripture that is as powerful as this. When we think about the size of God, the vastness, the greatness, the mind-blowing scale and awesomeness of who he is and what he's done, and we see Christ on the, Christ on the cross, sacrifice for us, God as man. Sin put to death on the cross for us. But do you know what? We've got something more powerful to look forward to in terms of our proximity with God. Revelation 21, verses 1 to 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, 
I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. It's wonderful to think that each one of us as Christians have this to look forward to. That the creator God that we've been thinking about this morning will bend before you. To wipe every tear from your eyes.